title of our message this morning. Who says? That statement that we've all uttered at times. Who says? When you, when you hear something that's borderline unbelievable and you're not sure if you trust the validity of it, who says? You challenge the authority, right? By what authority are you saying what you're saying? So there's something of a rite of passage that probably all children go through, whether they're at the park or they're playing in the backyard and they're playing games with friends, right? And you can imagine little Jimmy and Johnny in the backyard and they're, they're playing in the backyard and at some point some game they've always played and, and somebody changes the rules, right? Jimmy decides to change the rules and Johnny says, who says? And Jimmy says, I do. And Johnny says, you? You in what army, right? You remember that one in terms of trying to like... Well, why should you get to say that that's what the rules is? And then whether it's, there's another saying that children love to use or not, whether it would be in that context or a different context, and they're arguing, right? And they're trying to see who's, who's really in charge, who really has the authority. And then Jimmy would finally turn to Johnny and say, don't make me get my dad, right? I mean, that's pretty much as high as the authority can go to a couple of six-year-olds in the backyard arguing, right? And then it becomes a challenge of whose dad's is bigger. But, but I want us to think about that in terms of, well, who, by whose authority? Who says? We're here talking this morning and gathering around a truth called the gospel. And we've been explaining for several weeks as we've gone through the book of John. And we've, we started here in these chapters, uh, kind of in the middle of the book. And you've heard a summary of Jesus' ministry. Well, who says that this is the truth? Right? Who says that what Jesus said about his life is true? Who says that, that the truth of the gospel is true? By what authority did Jesus make those claims? By what authority do we gather this morning? And why would it be significant that you're going to hear people this morning proclaim their faith in Christ? Under whose authority has their life been changed? And why is that true? So let's jump into John chapter 12 because I need to save some time at the end for the testimonies. Verse 37 is where you started reading. Let me pick up the last little piece of verse 36 as well. And here's what John says. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So remember, Jesus entered into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry. He's just to the final week of his life, and the opposition has been fierce. Not everybody has agreed that he really is the king of the Jews. And look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. I need to stop right there. That's very, very significant. As John is bringing to a close, these first 12 chapters of the book. Remember I said the book was split into two parts. This, the, the first 12 chapters is the book of signs, and then we're going to get into the book of glory starting in chapter 13, and, and John has recorded a bunch of signs. In fact, he tells us the purpose statement of the book. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but I want you to see John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and I've got these verses for you, John 20, 30 and 31, and here is what Jesus, excuse me, Here's what John says in terms of the purpose of his book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wanted to help people see, look, Jesus really is who he says he was. All of these signs in the Old Testament were pointing to it. All of the miracles he's been doing in his life, this really is Jesus. And so you get to chapter 12, verse 37, 
And though people had seen him do many signs, he gave sight to the blind, he healed the sick, he could do incredible miracles, he could multiply food, he made a man who was dead in the tomb for four days alive. And people saw those signs and they still did not believe. So here's what's happening. John is bring, in, in, in the flow of the book, John is bringing to a close this book of signs. The first 12 chapters, you're going to see people still did not believe. The, the, the reaction to who Jesus was was, was uh, widely varied. It, it, was, it was on two opposite sides. Some that were ready to crown him king because they thought he was the Messiah. Maybe didn't understand the purpose for which he came, but they knew he was the Messiah. And then there were others ready to crucify him because, because they were violently opposed to his message. And here, even though they had watched these miraculous signs, so you're going to see John bring to a close these first 12 chapters, and you're kind of going to get two summaries. For the next few verses, John is going to give you his summary of the life of Jesus to this point. Here's, here's his summary of uh, as Jesus' life comes to a close. He's now just days away from death. And then you're going to get a few words from Jesus that in some ways could be his summary of his ministry on earth, his summary of the ministry to these Jews that he came to his own and his own received him not. He was rejected by those that he came. He was their king, and they rejected him. And you're getting the summary of it. So let's jump in then. After verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So he goes back and quotes Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the unspoken question, Lord, who, who has believed what he has heard from us? The unspoken answer is nobody. Jesus came and gave the message and the truth of who he was, and so many rejected. Just as Isaiah brought a message that, that through hardship, many rejected the truths that he brought, and they didn't turn and believe. Who has believed what he has said? Nobody. They saw it with their own eyes, and they rejected it. What was going on? How could Jesus really be who Jesus said he was? Think about it. In terms of the task after Jesus' resurrection, fast forward a couple months, and the disciples wanted to convince people Jesus really was who he said he was. Think of the task to convince people of that. Wait a minute. You're telling me he was the king of the Jews? They rejected him. Who believed him? Who believed in the name of the Lord? Nobody. You're telling us that was the Messiah? And so they had, uh, what was going on here? Were God's plans foiled? Were God's purposes spoiled? Well, no. God, this, this, God was behind these truths. God's plans weren't ruined. This was part of God's plans. And so he quotes Isaiah again, and he says, Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. God again goes back to a, 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 a quote from Isaiah, helping the people to see that God was behind the hardening of the hearts. Now, if we're honest, that's an uncomfortable truth. But Scripture says it, and we need to grapple with it and understand, well, why would, why would God do this? You see, the fact that Jesus was rejected by his own people is not proof that God's plans weren't true. It's evidence 
that God's plans were true. This was God at work because Jesus didn't just come to be the political savior of Israel. He came to bring salvation to Jew and Gentile both. And through the hardening of the Jews as they rejected him, God's salvation would be brought to all. And God's plans and purposes were behind all of that. Leon Moore says God's purposes are not frustrated by the opposition of evil men. They are accomplished. We have to believe that, that God is always behind these plans and purposes. And, and, and so we've got to realize that God was at work even in this. It's similar to what Paul says in the book of Romans as he counts some, recounts some of the hardening and the unbelief. And I've got some verses from Romans chapter 9 that I want you to see. Romans chapter 9 where Paul says this and he's commenting uh, on just this uncomfortable truth. Could God re- would God really harden someone's heart in this sense? And he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Spirit says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God was sovereignly behind the Old Testament Israelites. He was behind the events with Pharaoh. If you remember some of that, where God, frequently scripture says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and in other places it says God was behind the hardening. And we look at this and we say, is God unjust? No, God is perfectly just for judging sin. And this is part of what leaves mankind without excuse, that God, that they saw the truth and they rejected it. They heard about Jesus, and though they had seen him do so many signs, they still did not believe. And in this passage, you see both the combination of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. That in their human responsibility, they saw so many signs, and they still did not believe. They were responsible for that. That was God's grace and kindness to them that they will then be accountable for. And yet you see God working to accomplish his purposes by hardening their hearts, and you see God's dissovereign working. And here's what John then says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, so not everybody had the same reaction in terms of their heart being hardened. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How sad is this commentary to realize that there were people there who intellectually, with their reason and with their mind, they knew the truth that Jesus had to be the Messiah. But because of the fear of man and because they loved the glory that came from him, because they knew the opposition that would come for confessing Christ, they weren't willing to take that step. What is it that you have decided about Jesus? Because it's not just this crowd. There are many who are in this crowd where you get these couple verses of commentary and you realize there's a lot of people who knew what Jesus was, but they weren't willing to follow him with all of their life in terms of confessing it. J.C. Ryle had this to say in commenting on this passage, in commenting on who these people were, and he says this, These unhappy men were evidently convinced that Jesus was the true Messiah. Reason and intellect and mind and conscience obliged them secretly to admit that no one could do the miracles which he did unless God was with him, and that the preacher of Nazareth really was the Christ of God. But they had not courage to confess it. 
They dared not face the storm of ridicule, if not of persecution, which confession would have entailed. And so like cowards, they held their peace and kept their convictions to themselves. Now pay attention for us. Their case, it may be feared, is sadly a common one. There are thousands of people who know far more in religion than they act up to. They know they ought to come forward as decided Christians. They know that they are not living up to their light, but the fear of man keeps them back. They are afraid of being laughed at, jeered at, and despised by the world. They dread losing the good opinion of society and the favorable judgment of men and women like themselves. And so they go on from year to year, secretly ill at ease and dissatisfied with themselves, knowing too much of religion to be happy in the world and clinging too much to the world to enjoy any religion. How sad it would be if you were here this morning or if year after year, whether it's one time or a hundred times and you've heard the truth about Jesus and you believe him to be true, but you haven't confessed it with your life and followed who Christ is, whether that's the fear of man keeping you from it. And so I plead with you, if you know the truth of who Jesus is, turn to him. Follow him, believe in him, trust in him, and confess him that he truly is Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. A couple of times you have heard me say that it's not the words that come out of your mouth that saves you, it's the faith in what Jesus Christ is. But by that, do not take that to mean that the confession is not important. Realize that it takes both believing and following Christ, both faith and repentance. As Romans 10.10 says, I want you to see how Paul says it in Romans 10.10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you confessed Christ as Savior? Have you realized your need of sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ, realizing that it was only what Christ accomplished on the cross that could provide that forgiveness? That's what saves you, that faith, that confession. And then after you are saved, you make that public to the world and to the church through believer's baptism. That you would stand in front of the church and go through the baptismal waters and say, Jesus is my Lord. Baptism doesn't save you. It's the way that scripture has given us to make that confession public and to make others aware of it. And what a joy that is. How sad it is that there were some who watched what Jesus, who Jesus was they watched his life and ministry, and though they had seen him do many signs, they still did not believe. Do you believe in Jesus, and have you trusted in him for salvation? Then that's kind of John's summary. This is who Jesus was. People didn't get it, didn't understand it. Even some of the ones that believed weren't willing to confess. And then look what Jesus says, uh, what John says in verse 44. Jesus came to save the world. Here's what this is kind of Jesus' summary. John's taking some statements from the life of Jesus, and this kind of caps up his ministry. And as he was rejected, here's what Jesus says. And Jesus cried out, and that word is very strong, only comes up in a couple places in the gospel where Jesus is testifying with a loud voice and saying, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that, whoever does, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Here's Jesus' summary. Though so many have rejected him, he says, I came as a light into the darkness. Remember what John said in the prologue in John chapter 1, in those opening verses that a light came into the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not? Jesus says, I came to bring salvation. But listen, if you're rejecting me, uh, you're not rejecting just me. You're rejecting the Father who sent me. That's who says this authority came from the Father, and Jesus wanted people to know and understand that. Now, in a few minutes here, we're going to have some come and share their testimonies, but let's, take, let's back up and catch just a little bit of application again. This brings to a close the first part. Jesus has been rejected. It's as if the curtain closes on Act 1. Next week, you'll see the curtain open, chapter 13, verse 1. Kevin Rue is going to take us through those first verses of, of chapter 13, and, and uh, you'll see then now Jesus' ministry. He's been rejected by those he came to save. And, and next week, when you get into chapter 13, you've got just a few hours left in Christ's life, 48 hours, and you're going to see who he focuses on and how he turns to focus on his disciples at the close of his life. So as we think about, well, Jesus came and he brought salvation, and specifically as we think about these verses, what are some words of application for us as a church in, to, in terms of how we do ministry and specifically where conversion comes from? I want to think back to verse 37. Think back to verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. That is unfathomable. That the Son of God himself lived and walked and performed miracles among people and they didn't get it. So I have a question for you, church, brothers and sisters. Where do changed lives come from? we can tend to think that if we could put on a good enough show, there's this temptation to think that, that somehow if we're convincing enough through the right programs, through the right leaders, through the right facilities, we can, we can get enough people in and we can put on a good enough show and we're going to watch hearts change. Is that where changed lives come? You had the Son of God ministering among people and they saw miraculous signs and guess what? They still didn't believe. Nothing converts people unless the Spirit of God through the Word of God imparts new life to hard hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that converts people. Again, J.C. Ryle has this to say. He says, we err greatly. He was 100 years ago, by the way, more than that. We err greatly if we suppose that seeing wonderful things will ever convert souls. Nothing short of a new heart and a new nature implanted in us by the Holy Ghost will ever make us real disciples of Christ. Without this, a miracle might raise within us a little temporary excitement, but the novelty once gone, we should find ourselves just as cold and unbelieving as the Jews. Where does new life come from? 
It comes from a miraculous work of God to impart new life to unbelievers. Now that should not discourage us. That ought to embolden us. That ought to give us great confidence that when we gather week after week as a church and we hear God's word read and we sing about the truths of God's word and when we speak God's word to one another in conversation throughout the week, you're not going to convert anyone, but the Holy Spirit might use the word of God to change lives. How awesome is that? So it comes down to this. It's a matter of confidence. If it's not buildings and programs and leaders and some of these other things, if that's not what builds churches, you can build organizations that way. You can build crowds that way. But you don't build a body of converted souls that way. It's only God that does that. And he does it through his spirit and his word. Now that does not mean that buildings and programs and leaders are unimportant. It, not at all. In fact, they are important. It's a matter of confidence. These things serve as platforms for the Word of God. If our confidence is in the Word of God, we have to pay attention to buildings and programs and to leaders because we want the Word of God elevated and given the priority that it deserves. After this service, we'll ask you to consider some financial measures where we give some attention to some of the facilities around here. Why? It's not because our confidence is in our building here. It's because our confidence is in the Word of God, and we want to take care of the facilities that He has given us so that the Word of God is given the platform that it deserves. We, we realize that our confidence is in God himself to convert souls and to change souls. And if we're honest, that message that we're proclaiming is an offensive message. Let's be honest about that. There are some that think, let's tone down the offensiveness of the message. Let's put on the best show we can and we will build a crowd. And you might. But I doubt you're going to convert souls if you have lost the truthfulness of the gospel because the wrath of God and the blood that demanded by God uh, uh, through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross is an offensive message. So let's make sure that's what offends and, and use our programs and our platforms and our leaders and these other things to, to take down any other offense so that they can hear the message. Let's, let's make sure we offend them with the message before we offend them with a parking lot with holes in it or something like that, right? Let, let's realize that, that we want to see people converted and where's our confidence? It's in God and his word because he's the one that can impart new life. And we realize that not everyone will be converted. There were many here who watched Jesus' life and ministry and they didn't, though they saw many signs, they didn't believe. And yet we realize that God has put us together in churches and has sent us into the world on, on a mission to proclaim this good news. And we believe wholeheartedly that God has souls that he wants to save in Shemong and Tabernacle and Medford and Southampton. And we want to see that truth proclaimed and our confidence is in God and his word to convert souls. So let, us, let that be our focus as a people. Second thing just to think about, it, in terms of why is the truth of the gospel true? For several weeks I've been telling you and thinking with you and saying, what is it that you believe about Jesus? What have you decided about him? 
Is Jesus truly the Son of God, and is he your Savior, and do you need a Savior? Why do we have the authority to stand up here and proclaim this message, and what is it that you have decided about Jesus? And if you're searching and you know you're not a believer, or if you're curious about this, who says that what I say is true? Well, I don't stand up here in my authority saying that this is true. Shawnee Baptist Church doesn't have authority of our own. No pastor or religious leader or church. You owe it to yourself to look into Scripture and see if what we are speaking is the truth that comes from God himself. If we're speaking the words of Jesus, because in terms of that question, who says... You can reject me and think I'm wrong, and I will be wrong at times, but God will never be wrong. And here's what you've got to realize. There really is truth. And we're being sold a message in this world today where it says, well, what's true for you doesn't necessarily need to be true for the world around you. That sounds well and good, and it's not offensive, but if it's not true, it's not helpful. And if God himself is the judge, which Jesus says, he says, I didn't come in my own authority. I came and spoke the words of the Father. We believe that we will be judged by him on the final day, and therefore we want to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And that's who says. Who says? Why do we gather this morning? Why have so many of you committed your life to Christ and confessed, I follow him? It's because we believe that his word is true and he is the judge that will judge on the last day. What have you believed about Jesus? This morning I want you to hear from several. Thank you for encouraging us with your confession of Christ and how God worked in the gospel. So how about you? What do you say about Jesus? Do you realize that he is the light, that he came to bring light and salvation? If you're here this morning and you realize that you need to make a decision to trust in Christ, that you need to confess him as Lord and turn from your sin, we would love nothing more than for you to make that decision. You can do that now, to turn from your sin and just to tell God in your heart that you're a sinner and that you believe that Christ's death on the cross brought you life and forgiveness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close together. Father, we are grateful for who you are as God. We thank you for the book of John that records for us the life of Christ. And Father, we, we truly believe these truths. And I thank you for your work in our hearts to show us who Christ is. Those that need to trust in Christ, would your spirit work in their hearts through your word. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.